Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you John Connolly, interviewed live by broadcaster Mark Lawson at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a master of the crime writing genre. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, as um, Denise said, very excitingly, we're here to hear from John Connolly. Uh, there are prolific writers, and then there's John. Um, on, his, uh, on the inside of his latest books, he lists 32 titles, but we're here to talk about another two, or actually three, as we will explain, because there are two novels in The Furies, which is the 20th Harry Parker um, although for crime fiction pedants, in case any have snuck in here, um, it, no, can, sure <laughs> it can be called the 21st because there's a novella in the Nocturnes series, but it's, um, the publishers say it's the 20th. Uh, so we've got two Charlie Parker uh, stories to talk about. And then also, in his spare time, um, John wrote this thousand-page uh, anthology of Irish genre fiction. Quite a broad definition of genre. It, it, it includes W.B. Yeats um, and also Brian McGilloway and John uh, Connolly and others. So we'll talk about that. Um, and that Shadow Voices, 300 Years of Irish Genre Fiction, a history in stories. Works as a step, a stool, yeah. <laughs> a weapon, multi-purpose. I'm not just, it's not just selling you a book, it's selling you a lifestyle choice. <laughs> Um, so I thought we, we should start, John, with this. Um, this is what they used to call in cinema, the Furies. It's, it's a double feature. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we have um, the, the Furies itself um, is a Charlie Parker story set around uh, Portland Main Hotel, which makes the one in uh, Stephen King's The Shining look like the old Swan Harrogate. Um, and, and that's set during lockdown, and there are various people who might fear getting trapped in the hotel, so we'll talk about that in a moment. But before that is now a pretty full-length, 200-and-something, 20-page novel, um, which is The Sister Strange, which is based on, as we're about to explore, uh, based on a lockdown project of John's, which he published a novel online. So let's start with The um, Sister Strange. Uh, there were many responses to lockdown, but this was, this was one of yours. Yeah, I, I think... It, we forgot how frightening it was for those first months or so, uh, certainly the first weeks or so. I remember our Prime Minister at the time, Leo Bradford, going on television just before St. Patrick's Day and giving us what was quite, what I thought was probably the best speech of his career. It was quite moving to say, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but the government, we will look after you as best we can and we're all in this together. And like most writers, my book was postponed because publishers really didn't want to put out books and bookstores were going to close. Um, and I thought, what can you do to divert people? What can you do to give people instead um, if they're not going to have the book out? And I liked the idea. I knew people would be looking at their phones a lot because we were all checking news feeds or you were stuck in the supermarket queue, you know, beside people who were coughing like that out there. <laughs> and um, so everybody would just scatter. Um, and so the idea of giving people something that was effectively an installment, so they couldn't really be longer than 600 words a day because you didn't really want to look much more than that on, on the screen. And I thought it would be quite a simple thing to do. Um, and of course it was one of the worst mistakes I've ever made. Um, because then my publishers, four other publishers, five publishers came on a translation, I think, who wanted to do it. And so I needed to find translators who would do it, and I would write and submit it to the translators, and they would do it over the weekend so the next sections could be published the following week. And my poor son, who works in web design, had to get up at six every morning to post <laughs> these five sections. And effectively it was like people were allowed to see a work in progress. Because I, it was a, when I write, um, I don't go look back over what I do at all until I got to the end of the first draft. And then I spot the things I would change or the things I want to develop. And there simply wasn't a chance to do that with, with the sister stretch. I had to live with every decision I made. Uh, and so people were effectively looking under the bonnet and seeing this stuff unmediated in a way. And then I thought at the end of it, well, at least I'll have a novella to publish. And then, of course, it simply didn't work. 
once you put it together. You can publish something that's 600 pages long, has a, you know, with chapters that long, as a, unless you're James Patterson. You're not going to get away with it. Um, and so it, it, took a, it took another year. It had to be disassembled and reassembled as a novel and extended and rewritten. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was my lockdown project. And then, because I had come up with the idea of this, this strange hotel, I wanted the two, they're novels rather than novellas, I wanted them to have resonances, I wanted to have connections. So the book set around similar locales, and the book very much involved the idea of men underestimating women, and underestimating the, the potency of women. Um, and in a way that was, in a way it comes out of shadow voices as well, because, uh, and I don't want to, my poor publishers didn't talk about the Furies, for God's sake. Um, but one, I, I become very interested in, when I was writing Shadow Voice, Shadow Voice was very much an act of reclamation. Um, because in Ireland, we're still, in some way, regressive when it comes to, to thinking about genre fiction. At the moment, we have a, a fiction laureate for the next two and a half years, God help us, um, who despises genre fiction, um, who has said publicly that he regards it as nothing blank. Um, and and so he's going to be, this is a man who's going to be great next to him now to talk about fiction uh, to readers and, and much of what a lot of readers like to read, because a lot of us are Catholic with a small C, we will read some crime fiction, we might then pick up the book or a winner, we might read a work of non-fiction. Um, but he's going to be talking to readers and, and really excluding a great deal of matter that, 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 that they read. But also it seemed to me that he he didn't really, I, I think Colin's, we're talking about Colin to be, and I don't want to sound like I'm beating up him or anything, but I think his knowledge is very deep but quite narrow and shallow, and he's a product of modernism. Um, and one of the things about modernism, modernism really distrusted the popular fiction. It distrusted anything that, that appealed to vast numbers of people. It didn't really like things with a story. And in particular, it was very masculine. Uh, modernism is a very masculine movement. And what happened, I think, in the in that period of, of modernism and immediately afterwards was that a lot of popular fiction was dismissed, a lot of genre fiction was dismissed. And women have, have traditionally written a lot of genre fiction. It was often a way to interrogate their situation in life. It, whatever about the dismissal of, of crime fiction occasionally, romantic fiction always gets it in the neck. Even George Eliot used to worry about being compared, as she said, to silly women novelists. Mm. Um, but you know, at a time when women were effectively chattels, where you know you had no control over your income, you could really inherit, uh, it became something to be traded in marriage. Romantic fiction becomes a way for women to interrogate their situation. You know, if you're writing about marriage and love and relationships, you're actually talking about your position in society. Um, and they did the same with horror and with crime fiction. Women write very interestingly about that because they're always looking at it through the posi their position in society. And so after modernism, a lot of that gets dismissed. And women, you know, there's a really interesting trailing off that occurs. You know, at the, the, the end of the 19th century, women are writing about 50% of fiction. By the time we get to the 1950s, it's down to about 30%. Uh, and then it gradually comes up again to the point now where women are dominant right across fiction again. But in Ireland, we have particular difficulties because we had a revolution, you know, literally 100, effectively our, our independence is about 100 years ago. And genre fiction was looked at and thought, well, it doesn't have a part to play in, in Irish society anymore. And also genre fiction was considered very English. Um, our first president, Douglas Hyde, used to talk about, you need to reject shilling shoppers and penny dreadfuls. <laughs> they were regarded as, as being English, you know, crime fiction, horror, these were not Irish. And they had no part to play in the discussion of how our nation was going to form. And so genre fiction, the production of genre fiction, falls away in Ireland almost entirely. It goes off a cliff edge in the 1920s and 30s. So when I began writing, there were very few models in Ireland for what I wanted to do. And there was a great deal of suspicion of genre fiction, of somebody who would want to write crime fiction, and would also want to write outside the Irish situation. Wasn't there also, we, we will, we'll talk about this a bit more later, we'll get back onto the Charlie Barton. Sorry. But no, no, talk, no, not at all, it's fascinating. But isn't it which Brian Getaway and others have argued, there was also a problem with crime genre in Ireland that it was, uh, well, it was in it effectively in a war, but a, a war in which crimes were happening. Yeah, all the I, time. I think that's that's you know in in you have this this great uh, growth, particularly in Britain, in the 
80s um, of a new generation of crime lawyers, thinking people like Ian Rankin and Val coming up. Um, and in Ireland, really, the, the troubles at that point are, are at their height. And it's very difficult to write common regard crime fiction when, you know, two hours up the road from you, people are killing each other in some dreadful social and religious conflict. It, it seems almost immoral to be trying to write, you know, Mrs. Megan's crime mysteries or something in, in the shadow of this. And also, so much crime comes out of terrorism in that, you know, the, the IRA and the IMLA were involved in you know, prostitution, um, running the Dublin docks, uh, intimidation, you know, they, some of them would kneecap drug dealers and yet at the same time, if you were bringing in large amounts of drugs, you could pay a toll to get them through. And also, they were the only people with guns. And so if you wanted to rob a bank in the South, you know, there were only one group of people that you could ask for a gun. And you know, they'd give you a gun and tell you, you've got to give it back, you know, and you'd pay a fee and don't lose it. Um, and also, so, and also, you know, they were responsible in, in the South, the IRA, for an awful lot of bank robberies because it was a way of funding their activities. So they were knocking over post offices. I, I went to, a, to college with a, with a young woman. Sorry, I was in college with Mary Lee MacDonald, who was the, the probably going to be, God help us, our, our, our first female prime minister. And, uh, but she, was, she, she used to share classes with another girl whose father had been killed by the IRA, and an unarmed policeman in, um, in Dundalk who had been killed when, when, they, when they raided the post office. And, and they shot him and he was injured and then they came back and finished him off on the streets. And it's odd to be in, now looking back in this situation with people completely diametrically opposed. So if, if terrorism is so connected to crime, if you write a crime novel, it becomes kind of by extension a novel about terrorism. And terrorism is really difficult to write about on its own going. Um, I think it's Brian Gilloway once said, I think, um, you know, if you want to write about, there was only one chief of staff of the IRA, local chief of staff in Jerry, and he didn't particularly want to be in your crime novel. Yeah. You know? And it's very difficult to write when you're six feet underground. So you tend to shy away uh, from those kinds of situations. So it was very difficult for a long time for, for Irish writers to, to, to write about it. And did you want to write about that? I mean, I certainly didn't. It, like it is that it's an obvious connection, but that must be one reason also you wrote about America. Yeah. Because that didn't create that problem. Yeah, I, I, there were certain, I felt there were certain expectations uh, about being an Irish writer. One of the comic crews of mine used to talk about being engaged with the Irish situation. And as a young man in Ireland, there were few things I wanted to engage with less than the Irish situation. Ireland, in the, when I was growing up in the 80s, was a grim place to grow up. And, and most people just wanted to get away. We had massive emigration to the United States and to, to England and to Australia. Um, so Irish people have always sought to physically escape by going abroad. But for me, there was an imaginative escape in fiction from outside Ireland. I mean, England was too close. British crime fiction was too close. And there are, there are problems with that in that, you know, I'm the least Republican person I know. I really am. And yet even I recognize that there is a, historically, there's a difficulty with Irish people engaging with with British policemen, because you know we didn't trust them. They were representatives of a foreign power. I know Jane Casey is here, and Jane Casey is one of those writers who, who's really engaging with that in a very interesting way, because she has a, a woman of Irish heritage working with the, with the Metropolitan Police and engaging with those prejudices. Um, and it's interesting, even in the, the 19th, certainly the early 20th, 19th, 20th centuries, there's a reluctance among Irish writers to write crime fiction set in Ireland for that reason, I think, because it would mean, even if you have a private investigator, at some point he's going to have to engage with the police force. But the police force is not an Irish police force. The police force is a British police force, in which a lot of people don't have faith at that time. So you can see there are Irish crime writers, but they tend to set their novels in England. So there is a tradition there, perhaps. But for me, I looked at American crime fiction and thought, this is so antithetical to everything Irish that I can find an escape here. And yet, it took me a while to realize that, that I brought my Irishness with me and it was a good thing in that, um, you know, I share an agent with, or did until Lee re retired, um, with, with, with Lee Child. And Lee had a very different, different attitude, I think, towards American crime fiction. Um, there's a certain, I think, ironic distance in what he writes. You know, the, the Reacher novels are not entirely serious. Um, but he was very much co-opting that tradition. Um, but I, I suppose the Irishness in me is that fascination with folklore and the Gothic and the supernatural. And they're not traditionally a part of American crime fiction. They just don't form part of it. So 
my Irishness allowed me to do something I hoped that was a little bit different rather than simply writing a, maybe a kind of pale imitation of what an American would do. But also that Irish-American is such a strong identity. I mean, they've got another president who identifies um, mm -hmm. in such a way. Um, a lot of identity questions at the moment around, as you know, would, would you, do you see yourself as an Irish writer or an Irish-American writer? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I see myself as an Irish writer. I've never thought of myself in, in any other way. It was just my definition of Irishness was, was very, very different. But it also returns to first principles in a way that Irish writers, one of the things that I think some people had difficulty with when I began writing, and, and still do, I, I know Otto Penzler more or less tolerates having me in the store, um, in, in the mysterious bookstore in New York, but, but I'm, I'm trying to be politically and culturally at every level would, would probably turf me out of my ear if, if I didn't sell books for him. Um, but, but, you know, Otto disapproves very much of that mingling of the the supernatural and, and, and the crime novel. And, and there were a lot of people who were quite traditional who did. But from the beginning, Irish writers were always very comfortable with that mix, with that intermingling. Um, thinking of somebody like Sheridan Refinu, for example, writing Uncle Silas, which is a, a gothic novel, but co-opts so much of the supernatural into it. And a writer like L.T. Mead, who wrote the first, really the first medical mysteries, Michael Crichton and, and Robin Cook are her children. But again, quite comfortable with introducing little elements of the supernatural. Um, and one of the arguments I was making with the Jedi Voices was that actually that intermingling of genres was actually very typical when, the, when, when we began writing crime fiction. And it's really only in the, the beginning of the 20th century that that purism began to creep in. I, there's a very real conservative element to crime fiction. Mm. There always has been, and, and I think there continues to be. It's the only genre I can think of where we, writers routinely show creating rules about how to write it. You know, whether it's Ronald Knox or S.S. Van Dyne or, God love them, Eleanor Leonard even had rules, you know? You don't get science fiction writers giving you a set of rules when you say, I'd like to be a crime writer. That's fine, you can be a crime writer. Here are the rules, okay? Take them home, study them, come back and think about it. Romantic fiction, fantasy fiction, it doesn't arise. Crime fiction has an inherent conservatism. But, John, the reason for that, though, isn't it, is that there, um, it's, which Agatha Christie spoke about a lot, um, it's the compact, the relationship, the deal with the reader is the issue there. Well, but Christie was, was, was one of those writers who continually undermined it. You know, even she knew the rules were absurd. Yeah, but, okay, there certain rules. So the thing that someone famously said about magical realist fiction, which is that once the hero can turn into a bird and fly away, mm -hmm. then there's no tension. You can do whatever you want. Um, you are actually quite careful about that, aren't you? That oh, I don't have the, the ghost doesn't do it. No, and you don't, exactly, and you don't, you don't allow Charlie to become an angel and fly yeah. away to get out of trouble. So actually, you are in that sense. You, you are. So the novels are very fair to the reader. Yeah, the novels can often be read in two ways. They can be read as, you know, that that there is a a rational explanation for what happens, but mm -hmm. there is also an element to it that is mm -hmm. that is anti-rational, and the reader can often choose how much of that to accept. Um, for example, just to impose, the, and by the way, The Furies, although not published on the 4th of August, is available um, by special arrangement for sale in the bookshop where John will be afterwards. But, so in the, in the Furies, the second of the two novels in here, um, that's a good example that um, someone says uh, in this awful hotel, sorry, that awful hotel, not this awful hotel, <laughs> there's, um, uh, there's a ghost. We'll, we'll see yeah. him in court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, um, uh, there's a trial running up and down the corridors hiding. And um, in a certain kind of crime novel, we know there must be a rational explanation that a child has got left behind by a builder and grown up in the hotel. But with you, we, we, we don't know. It could be, it could be either. Yeah, and I, 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 I like playing with that. I, I, it, it fascinates me. And it, it is a throwback to... Um, I, I did realise to some degree that I counted was colouring outside the lines when I began writing. Um, when I grew up, I, I grew up on the, the ghost stories of Emerald James. And, and crime fiction, American crime fiction. And one of the things I loved about James was intrusion. Um, in that what you have is usually very ordered lives, often fusty academics, and, and they have a very regimented view of the world, a very rationalist view of the world. And then they are given a brief glimpse, uh, most famously, I think, August Lyon come to you in America, so it's probably a prime example. They're given a glimpse of of this extraordinary world underlying ours, this one winning on and their their whole viewpoint shifted. They can never look at the world in, in quite the same. If they survive what what happens to them, they can never look at the world the same way again. And I suppose, I, you know, I, we were talking earlier about Catholicism. Um, you know, I was brought up a Catholic. I still have a, a degree of faith, and it's very hard to be Catholic and entirely rational. 
you know, to, to sit kind of uncomfortably uh, with each other. And I've always found rationalism an insufficient way of explaining the world and the way it works and the way people work. Um, and so when I began writing it, it was quite natural to me to combine those those two elements. There was a profound. I mean, there's a there's a you know, I've thought a lot about what I do, and then there were there were reasons, quite personally, why I was creating this kind of fiction. It was, it was kind of integral to how I looked at the world. And, and were you aware that you, twenty books ago, full-length books ago, that you were um, that you were starting a new genre or creating? I don't think I, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think. No, so. but you were creating. Well, I, no. Well, I'm like like a lot of writers, like that, I, I I'm slightly surprised to still be here, and, and probably some writers who are slightly surprised to see me here. Um, still, um, you know, I, I think when my when that first book was was accepted by a publisher, um, I, I was very I was surprised, and my instinct was like a lot of writers, well, can I have it back so that I can do it right? Because you know that was, that was just the first go, um, and so I didn't anticipate having having a career that was going to last twenty two or twenty three years now, um, and it took me until about. The fourth or fifth book before I realized, kind of realized what I wanted to do. That I thought actually I'm going to be able to do this for a while. And one of the, and I would look at crime fiction and think, what are the th what were the things I didn't like about? It? And one of them was that characters frequently have no memory, and then episodes in crime fiction tended to be quite discreet. Um, whereas in historical fiction or fantasy literature, readers were quite used to novels that would form part of a larger sequence. And we're quite comfortable with it. I think sometimes we, we underestimate the intellectual capacities of readers. And so I, I realized probably by about that fourth book that actually what I can do is I took two years off from writing about Parker to think about what I wanted to do when I came back. And what I thought was well, actually I want these books to form a sequence and I want each book to constitute, it can stand alone as a chapter. But if you read them in order, you will get pieces of a larger puzzle coming together in the background and they will form that metaphysical um, and so that's that's the way the books are, that's the way the books have progressed. But to say that I, I, I certainly didn't have a plan, and there were models for it. You know, I look at James Lee Burke, for example. He was one of the few writers to seriously engage with, with that possibility of mingling the supernatural and 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 the rationalist crime novel. Um, but you know, he comes from an Irish background. His Gothic influence would be more Southern Gothic and Faulkner, or, or uh, he was, you know, he would argue that um, Scott Fitzgerald was a Gothic. So there are his antecedents, but, but I could see um, a, a point of connection there. And actually, he was such an influence on me that when my first book was published, I took time out because you know, Burke doesn't, he doesn't like flying. He's a profound fear of flying. And the only way he could do it was when he was a drunk. And then when he stopped being a drunk, he couldn't fly anymore, so that's why he never got on this side of the Atlantic. So it was a case of Muhammad going to the mountain a little bit. Uh, and I, I went to visit Kaidabot as an act of pilgrimage, I suppose. Um, and you could see something, I remember asking, I think Burning Angel was the book that he had published at the time. I remember being, I read it and was very interested to know what it was about. And I asked him, what's Burning Angel about? And I don't think he knew. Um, because he was quite, it was enough, it was a bit like asking T.S. Eliot what the, what the Wasteland is about. And he'd probably go, hey, I don't know, he just doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> and I remember I was so anxious to, well, until I was so anxious to impress Burke. And, and I, I was like such a little fanboy in a headline because I was taping the interview, I was going to write it for the Irish Times. And I think he got so bored with me that he said, well, let's go for a walk instead. And I think he just wanted to lose me somewhere. So we went for a walk. <laughs> we went for a walk in the great rattlesnake wilderness, which is not somewhere that immediately sprang to mind. I went, OK, Mr. Burke, I'll go for a walk with you. And, um, and I remember I bought my first Donna Karen sweater. Um, I was in an outlet mall, and I thought this would be the first piece of designer clothing I think I'd ever bought. And I was quite proud of this sweater. And I went walking, and um, we met. We went up this this little trail. This, we drove up this little trail in Montana, and this man came out wearing dungarees and he had a gun in his hand. And it turned out to be a neighbour of Burke's. He did, did, but didn't really like having people he might not have known coming up his path. So we're chatting away, and he said, "Well, if you're going to walk, be careful because there was a there's a cougar, and they'd had a problem with a cougar, and then some hikers had come across it and, and had to keep it at bay for three miles with a pointed stick. And I, the first thing you do when you hear that story is Okay, I need a pointed stick, just, just in case. And I was with uh, one of Burke's friends who'd come up from Louisiana to see him, and so I was chatting with him, and, and we were walking a little bit ahead, and behind us were Burke and this man, who was wearing dungarees, and, and this man had two dogs with him. And we walked, and I was chatting with the other guy, and, um, 
And eventually we just couldn't hear the dogs anymore. And we looked around and couldn't see anybody we knew. And we'd come off the trail and obviously were completely lost. And we wandered around for a while until Burke's neighbour and his dogs found us. And I, all the time I was thinking that they would identify me by the tag on my Donna Karen sweater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's him, Donna Karen sweater on a skull. That's him, Donna <laughs> skull. Yeah, so I did another thing I'm proud. He did let me back into the house again, but it was probably about a decade later once, once he'd recovered from the frustration of having to wander through the woods finding me. And I was thinking, when I was reading um, The Furious, the two books, and I just watched Stranger Things and... I was thinking about this, the fact that there is so much uh, surrealist um, fiction around at the moment in various ways, or people going through portals into other worlds, you know, the films of Christopher Nolan. It must partly be because um, the world is not realistic um, anymore. I mean, it seems, it's very hard to, I mean, it feels unreal. I mean, particularly the last um, yeah, well, it's, it's reality. half decade or so. Like most things about reality, you know, it's a nice place to visit, but you don't want to live there. You know, it's actually we, we that that idea, especially in the world as it is, the idea that of of escape, that possibility of, of moving into another realm is really important. You know, I occasionally work with, with prisoners, and um, and I think lockdown told us some taught us something about that as well. The, the the value of escapism in literature, the value of something that takes us out of our own existence, however briefly, and puts us somewhere else, whether it's it's more challenging, whether it's more exciting, whether, whatever it might be, more romantic. There's a real pleasure in that, and, and I, I think that's why I get so frustrated with people who are dismissive of genre fiction, because it seems to dismiss so much of the pleasure of reading is, is that idea of escapism, and then genre fiction has always been very interested in that, that possibility of presenting alternative existences. Uh, two craft writing questions about I'm always struck that there's a huge amount of backstory in your books of the individual characters, or in this case of the hotel. There can be three, four pages explaining a hundred years or so. You, I assume you can't just write that onto a blank page. I mean, you have to map it out in advance. No, I'm hopeless at that. I've never been a planner. Um, I think it was maybe Sophie Hannah, I think, was really annoyed about that, about writers who didn't plan them. She seemed to take it very personally. I didn't quite <laughs> understand why. It wasn't like I was coming around to her house and unplanning her books. Um, I'm just not, I, I think, you know, that I, I, it's for the same reason I suspect I can't play chess. I'm not very good at thinking that far ahead. And so I, I often start with simply the first chapter or the idea for the first chapter. And, and really not knowing, and, you know, Trista Strange was an example of that, really not knowing where the thing is going to go. But I know after doing it for as long as I have done that if I sit down and I write the first thousand words of something, I'll have a good idea of what the next thousand words are going to be. And from, for the purposes of writing, that's enough. You know, um, by the time I'm about two thirds of the way through the novel, I have a pretty good idea of how it's going to end. But until that point, I, I really don't. And, and part of the play, it's a difficult way of writing. I think it's easier to write if you plan. It takes away that, that element of doubt. I, I don't teach creative writing because I, I agreed to do it some years ago for a university in Liverpool and then realized that everything I knew about creative writing I'd explained in about the first three minutes. And I felt, <laughs> and I, to have signed up for three years it seemed like fraud and eventually I had to say I can't do this anymore because I've told them everything I knew. But what I do know about writing, and you're getting that if anybody wants to send a check later just as, you know, and thank you, as a small thank you for doing this is that you know, every book I, I've published, I've wanted to throw it away after 20,000 words. Every single one of them. And it never goes away. Um, and have you done that? Have you no, I've never. And what I've realized is, and it, it helps being slightly obsessive compulsive, I think, in that once I start a project, whatever it might be, I, I kind of need to finish it. Um, but I realize that that doubt is part of the process, that you begin something, the same with any kind of new project, you begin it with a degree of enthusiasm, but enthusiasm only gets you so far, especially if you're writing a novel that I think my longest novel is 180,000 words. Enthusiasm runs out pretty quickly, and then you're into hard grind. Um, and for a lot of people who want to write, I, I suspect that that's the point at which they begin losing faith in what they do, and thinking, well, I, I, you know, I, maybe I'm not meant to be a writer, this wasn't a very good idea. And you get what I always think of as the siren call of the new idea, the little voice in your head that says, well, that was a very good idea, but here I'm going to shine a new idea and follow me instead. And you eventually end up with a drawer filled with half-finished poems or short stories or novels. And, and I really firmly believe that creative people are born with a finite amount of creative confidence. And whenever you abandon the project, you chip away a tiny piece of that confidence and you never get it back. And I think it was Ray Bradbury who said that, that professionals are amateurs who finish things. 
it's the difference between a professional and an amateur. You finish a project, so you commit to finishing a project, but you recognize that it's done in tiny steps. Um, you know, I'm a full-time writer, and I rarely get more than a thousand words a day done, but I do that every day, and I think that's that's the, the trick of it. I mean, there's nothing new to it. Than that. Sorry, that was a no, no, that's very interesting. I'm also interested in the the, the park of voice because uh, typically, and indeed in these cases, the situation is set up, and then he gets the call, and then we go into first person, but. I've interviewed a lot of actors over the years who have played a character for a long time, sometimes years, and they differ quite dramatically. Some of them say, oh, I just put on the coat at the toupee and they're there. And others have to kind of summon up the character each time they play them, because they just can't find them for a long time again. So I wonder with that, after 20 of these books, um, Parker's voice, does that come to you easily? Do you know well, it? For, for, six, for various reasons, I've often... I look back at the books and I see kind of plateau novels where there's a, a break and the, the novels change a little bit. So The Black Angel is one point in which novels begin to change. And then The Wolf from Winter is another. And for various reasons, if anybody's read The Wolf from Winter, there is a reason why the narrative voice changes in that book. It changes halfway through. Um, and it moves to the third person and stays that way for five and a half books where we don't hear Parker's voice at all. And this is the first time that I've gone back to first person narration since then, so in, in six or seven years. And the voice did come back, but the voice has changed. When I was writing Dirty South, because it was a prequel, I had to look again at every dead thing. It was the first time I've looked at the book in certainly 19 years, probably. Because um, it felt like, you know, I sit down, sit the children down home, like, Daddy's going to read something from whatever's novels. <laughs> Gather around. You know, I think it's the nightmare for most writers that you would look back at something you've written did, 20 years before. Did anything surprise you or horrify you? Oh. I suppose the, the voice felt very mannered. I, I was very much enthralled to my models, which were Ross MacDonald in particular, uh, and a certain mode of American crime writing. And it really took me, I don't think it's until The Wolf and Winter that I begin to find my own voice. It, it took me a very long time to, to shake off. And not all of those were influences I wanted to shake off. Um, but it was di at that point, it was difficult. So the, the Parker voice comes back, but the Parker voice has moderated over the years. Because you know, when I began writing my first book, I was 25, I think, um, and it was published when I was 30. And, and I'm now 54, and, and the character has aged with me. So that voice is different with the art to, to keep writing in, in the same manner. And I think when I, I remember for, Denise was talking about that first Dead on Beans game. And I remember looking, it was on, the, the, coming here, but it's the first time I've been here, in, I think in 10 years. Um, I always think 10 years is just enough for everybody to forget how annoying you were 10 years <laughs> previously. Um, um, but I remember, I remember feeling that, that there were certainly some writers who probably felt that I hadn't paid my dues. I, I was young, I, I was Irish, I was male. Um, and, 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 and I have, didn't have three or four novels that hadn't sold or that had been published by small publishers. And really it was because I, I, I was so driven to finish that book. Like I, I spent a long time just working on one book, over, trying to get it right over and over again, and, and possibly not getting it right. Um, you know, I, I, I had arguments. One of the things about The Furies is that those two short novels kind of go back to the writer I thought I was going to be. Uh, I'm a, um, you know, a minimalist trapped in a maximalist body, I think. Just as Leonard <laughs> Kinky Freeman used to say that he was a giver trapped in a taker's body, which I've always loved. Um, but I, I thought, because my novels were people like Ross MacDonald, if you go back to those novels written in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they're rarely longer than 70,000 words. You know, if you think about Christie, you know, where we are, those novels are quite short. And I thought I was going to write quite short crime fiction. Uh, I, I remember, I'm sure somewhere in my agent's archives, if he bothers to keep those letters that I ever sent him, was an argument for saying that really no crime novel should be longer than 70,000 words. You know, you'll know this, but one, uh, a lot of people will, but one reason it was paper shortages after World War II. There's a bit in one of Graham Greene's letters where they say you'll have to cut this because it's 256 pages right. maximum. Which is an extraordinary thing that they have that um, uh, artificial limitation. Yeah, it is. I know, but you know, it, it's curious as well across genres. Um, you know, I was speaking earlier about how much I was influenced by, by some supernatural writers like Emerald James. Um, I, I, don't really, I don't like crime short stories. I, I think the crime novel is ideally is the ideal form for, for that particular genre. Um, yeah, I, I think that I, I dislike supernatural novels. Um, I like supernatural short stories because I think the difficulty with a novel is that 
a, a supernatural novel has to give you an explanation at the end. I mean, as a reader, we kind of expected something approaching a beginning and with an end and a conclusion and an explanation. And in a horror novel, the explanation is always much less interesting than what was presented at the beginning. And so with James, for example, you, you just get a glimpse of something that's very rarely, hardly ever explained to you. It doesn't have to be explained. Um, and yet for a novel, like a crime novel, I quite look for, I like the unfolding. I like to see that explanation gradually emerge in the space that, that, it, that it provides. In an answer, a couple of months ago, you described yourself as a man and Irish man. These are controversial things sometimes now. Um, that, um, there's a lot of talk, understandably, because everyone's facing it with publishers uh, and critics about sensitivity readings and who has the right to uh, write what. I mean, for example, you have a, um, a character on the autism spectrum in one of these stories. Um, you have uh, a character of color who is not, you know, you're not, etc. women. Um, have you ever worried about that? Or, and do you worry about it more now? No, I, I, I think it... It's not as prevalent in crime writing, I don't think. It, it's very much so in fantasy and science fiction, which I think it tends, tends to attract more readers who are dissatisfied with the world the way they are. Uh, you know, crime, super science fiction often attracted a right-wing element for that, for that reason, who dislike seeing liberalism creep in. And fantasy literature, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, people who just don't like the world the way it is and want to express it in a different way, and are much more sensitive to that. It's not as prevalent in crime fiction. My view is that, that one of the great facets of, of fiction is, is that it forces us to empathize. It tries to, it's the only form of creativity that I can think of that really allows you to see the world through another person's eyes, that allows you to inhabit another consciousness in that way. And um, that, I, that imaginative connection is very, very important to me. Um, I, I had a I was in a bookstore in in San Francisco quite a few, quite a few years ago. Two of my worst experiences of, of being in bookstores in San Francisco. This was this was the better of the two. I can tell you the worst one as well. Um, but a, a gentleman came up and he had about twelve copies of I, I think it was maybe it was the Killing Hunt. And you're always quite careful when somebody brings twelve copies of the same book in case you know they they were really good you know. A sandwich or a picnic, as we used to say. And you know, the next thing you know, his mum comes along and says, oh, he's always buying 12 copies of the same book. You know, <laughs> thank God she didn't sign them all. And I did say to him, you know, just in the book, why would possible to you? You know, you have 12 copies of the same book. And he said, he said, Jay, he said, he said I, I, I'm, I run a gay men's reading group, he said. And he, he was really lovely. He said, you know, he said, the only disappointment he had was that I wasn't actually gay myself. I think that would have just been the icing on the cake. But he said, you know, he said, for some we were we, we would read gotten the gay novels in which men, gay men were either really unhappy or were reading Armistead Maupin. And it was quite nice to read a, a, a novel in which two men, you know, it wasn't really an issue. They were, you know, they, they just happened to be gay. Um, the bad experience was, it was, was awful. It was, um, my publishers in, in the States very rarely worked with the same publishers two years in a row, and, and they often, some of them were quite young, they maybe didn't know bookstores, and they put me into a bookstore in San Francisco when I arrived, I was down on a little side street, and, and I looked in the window before I went in, and every book was, was a piece of black literature, or, or black non-fiction. And in the, there was one copy of my book and in, the, in the window, and the book was The White Load, which sounded like, <laughs> yeah, like a self-help book for black people who really didn't want to be quite as black anymore. You know, yeah, wear pericomo sweaters, drink oat milk, you know, whatever it might be. And I went into this bookstore, and there was, this huge guy behind the counter who just looked at me and I said, oh, I, I'm the, the author. And he went, yeah. And we went downstairs and there was a podium in this little basement. And he very carefully laid out six chairs. And he sat on the last chair and he looked at me and I looked at him. And then 15 minutes later he looked at his watch and he put all the chairs away. And, I went away. and that was it. That was about as bad a signing as I'd ever had. And I thought, yeah, it, it, it can only be uphill. And we're moving towards um, taking questions, but we'll just say a little bit more about this, this extraordinary book. Now, um, there are some names who this audience uh, have actually seen on this stage. So at the end, we, with Stuart Neville, John Connolly, uh, Jane Casey, Brian McGillaway. Um, and, uh, and yet there are other names that might surprise people. It starts with Jonathan Swift. Um, I mean, it's not a crime anthology, but even so, 
Um, Yates is in there. So I know you've written a thousand pages and effects about this, but um, your definition of genre in this connection, the short answer. Uh, for me, genre is simply the kind of fiction that you read. It's, 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 it seems to me to be very broad. It, it has become interlocutory term in a way that we throw in fiction that we don't like and often so we can dismiss it as genre fiction. Remember, Duke Gallington used to say there are just two, two types of music. There's good music and the other kind. You know, and it, for me, writing has always been there is there's good writing and then there's the other kind. Um, and and you know, for example, we really only use the term detective fiction towards the end of the nineteenth century. Horror as a descriptor really only comes into play in the twentieth century. So these definitions that we have are, are are comparatively recent. And and one of the things when I was going back at it was often how comfortable Irish writers were with it. You know, Yeats, um, you know, he loved ghost stories. Um, he was he was he was a, he published the first fiction by Lord Dunsany, who was regarded as one of the precursors of fantasy literature. Lord Dunsany, who was admired by H.P. Lovecraft, he was a mentor to Mary Lavin. Lavin's regarded as one of the great literary short story writers. So there were these little connections that got that got teased out. Um, but there were also even it was a long process of discovery. Um, and what surprised me often was how pioneering Irish writers were. The book is not just about Irish genre fiction, it uses Irish genre fiction to explore these attitudes to genre fiction in general. But one person really particularly stood for me. Even the Oxford um, Guide to Crime Writing left to read. There was a writer called Mary Helen of Fortune. And if there was no other reason for, for publishing the book, it, it's her. She's brought up in Northern Ireland in the, the middle of the the 19th century, her father's an engineer. She gets the kind of education that a woman at the time would have had, which would have been quite modest. Her father goes to Canada uh, to work over there. At some point, she gets married, probably very, very young. And then her father goes to Australia, and she goes with him, clearly abandoning a husband but bringing a child with her. And she's obviously got a talent for writing, and she's applied to Australian newspapers for a job as an editor, but she's probably signed herself M. Fortune. And she arrives at the newspaper office and they look at her and they say, we don't employ women. Uh, doesn't matter how good you are. And she learns a lesson at that point. And she thinks, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this myself. She marries an Irish, bigamously marries, an Irish-Australian policeman named Percy Rowlett. And she's thinking all the time and she's looking at what he's doing. And she becomes fascinated by the mechanics of police work. She's the first really forensic writer. She becomes the processes of crime investigation. And she begins writing short stories for an Australian newspaper. She takes over from a guy who's been accused of plagiarism. She slots very neatly in. And she begins to publish under a pseudonym, Waif Wander, WW. And she, writes, she begins to write her own series about an Australian policeman in, in the in the, the mines, minefields, uh, the minefields, but in the, the mines in, in, in Australia. And they're quite hearted in the story in the book. is about the hunt for a serial rapist. Traces of crime, 1865. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the hunt for a rapist. It's a, quite a female piece of crime writing. But so good is, is she at, that, at writing these stories that it's assumed by everybody that she's either a serving or retired policeman writing these tales. And the newspaper simply decides not to tell anyone the truth about this. So her identity is kept hidden. And so successful is this that she dies unrecognized. She becomes an alcoholic. She's, she's a victim of sexual assault herself. And she's buried eventually in, in a grave that's meant for somebody else. So they, they couldn't even find for a long time where she was buried. And only recently did they discover the grave that she'd been buried in. Um, but she's, she's, she's really the first woman who writes crime fiction from the perspective of a policeman, that, that inhabits that consciousness in, in such a convincing way. And she's such a pioneering figure, and she was simply forgotten. <laughs> For so long, and and I found her story incredibly moving. Uh, you know, I think she was a, quite an extraordinary figure. She was helped, by the way, that by her second child became a criminal, uh, quite a notorious <laughs> criminal. So I suspected she picked his brains a bit as well. Um, but the stories, and they, you know, sometimes we think about stories written in 1860s, and we think that they're not going to appeal to the modern, the sensibility of the modern reader. It reads like it could have been published yesterday. You know, it's quite an extraordinary piece of fiction. She's a very modern writer already. And uh, there are really fascinating discoveries in this book. That's a great example. And just before we open it up, from every dead thing, title taken from John Donne, you later have T.S. Eliot, um, astonishing level of um, knowledge in here. Um, the 
your, your head is filled with books. I mean, a repository of literature and books. Is that, um, so presumably that starts with childhood, Yeah, my, my father didn't read fiction at all. He was part of that generation, that, uh, still this generation now, that doesn't really trust fiction. He would read one novel a year. Uh, he would pick it in my grandmother's house from the shelves. Um, he once picked um, I Claudius by Robert Glaze, which took him two years to read, and I don't think he was ever the same man afterwards. He's <laughs> never going to make that same. And, and actually, the novel he picked up after that was, was Let's Hear It for the Death Man by Ed McBain, which is my introduction to crime fiction. Wow. I mean, it was the only novel we ever read at the same time. Uh, and that was transformed my, my, my viewpoint. Um, yeah, what, did what, your, what did your dad make of it? Did he like it? He liked it because it wasn't like Claudius. Yeah. You know, it was short. <laughs> uh, yeah, and stuff happened. Uh, yeah. So he was quite, but it didn't kind of convince him that fiction was anything to be read. And when I said I want, I, he was very, he was of a generation in Ireland that had had all of the optimism knocked out of him. Um, and I had, you know, I, I wanted to be, at one point wanted to be an actor, um, but I, I, I clearly was moving towards writing. And he just did not want me to do that. You know, he felt that this was not, people like us, I, I come from quite a, I don't really class household, but I'm certainly the first generation of my family to go to university. Um, and he felt that people like us simply didn't become writers. You know, we didn't <coughs> become actors. We worked for the council and we found a job that we couldn't be fired from unless we burned down the council offices, you know. <laughs> uh, and then he retired at 65. I mean, he was very much somebody who wanted, he would talk about how he would, he wanted to go sailing around the South China Sea. Uh, even though he always got seasick, he only went on the ferry once. Uh, and that was to the Isle of Man, that was abroad for us. He just didn't want to travel. He didn't even like being outside of his car. He went on holidays and he parked his car so he could see it outside my grandma's house. But he died in his job. He died in, in a job he hated. He was a rate collector. And so everybody would see, just like seeing him alive. And I said that probably took a toll on him eventually. But to see him, you know, I, I didn't want to be in that job. And I remember his annoyance when I when I quit the job I had and cashed in my pension and went to university. There was no pride. He simply felt that this was ill-advised. Um, but that was the beginning. And you, Trinity was transformative for me. That was when I really became a And it is, as we have fascinating now, that we talk about people distrusting genre. The men in particular, people still say to me, can you recommend a book from my husband, my, my father, um, but not fiction, they yeah. say. And it is extraordinary that there is, I yeah, think it is a male thing, that it, it is, they it, don't trust it. Yeah, and there's a confusion between reality and truth, I think. That mm. Fiction contains extraordinary truths, but it doesn't necessarily have to be real. Um, okay, we have um, a couple of microphones out there. So, who, yes, so if you come down the middle and then we can do the two on the inside aisle and then we'll spread outwards. Um, hi, John. I usually, see, I usually see you in Waterstones Cork, so it's great to see you on the other island. Um, <laughs> But I, you were talking about reading the book, or some, maybe it was Mark, reading the book in two ways, as a supernatural, but also sort of straight detective <coughs> fiction. But particularly with the cycle of books that ended with the Book of Bones, the Fractured Atlas cycle, I've also been reading it in a third way, um, as an allegory of the fracturing of the old world order as we knew it until kind of relatively recently. And I just wondered, am I mad? Or was, were, I mean, were, is that part of your intention? And I believe it must be. It, I, there's always an element of that in that the novels, um, the novels are political as well with a very small P. Um, I get, it's quite, I get in, increasing over the last couple of years, I, I, I've been getting the really unpleasant emails from, usually from conservative American readers, with the same tone, which is that I, I don't pick up novels to have to hear the writer's political opinion yeah. expressed, which usually means I don't go to hear political opinions with which I disagree. Mm. It's funny, I, I'm with uh, Atria in, in, in the US, which is a branch of Simon & Schuster, which is quite a lot of, there are quite a lot of writers I would regard as quite likely people like Brad Thor, writers who don't really transfer over this side of the Atlantic, their appeal tends to stop around Boston. Um, and recently, I, I'm, uh, Michael Carino and I always say are like Marx and Engels on the list compared to some of the people there. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, there is a conception of social justice that has always run through the Pride of Ireland from the beginning, um, because it was very much about, you know, it, it's born in California, this incredibly corrupt state that's 
largely run by the railroad companies, wasn't the water companies, but the railroad companies, because you control the movement of goods and people, you control an economy. And, and anything that doesn't serve that economy becomes kind of secondary. And so if you were poor, an immigrant, uh, vulnerable in any way, the forces of law and order would not stand up for you the way they would for the, the wealthy or the privileged. So you turn to somebody from outside that system. You know, and it's interesting whether a lot of those early private eye novels were Western writers to begin with. Dashiell Hammett, for example, was a, was a Western writer. Um, and so I see, I, I, for me, it's very hard for me to write private eye fiction without that conception of social justice creeping into it, that, that idea of standing up for the vulnerable. And we're now in a in a in a, a realm, especially in the United States, where kindness is seen as being somehow a weakness, that it's kindness is, is wokeness and kindness is liberal and kindness is dangerous and kindness is socialism. And you know, well, I am a socialist, but what I, I don't believe that kindness is linked to socialism. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so there is always that dimension. And I worry a little bit when, when somebody writes those kind of emails, it means that you've probably failed in a way. Because nobody wants to hear the writer pull up their soapbox and, you know, clutch the lapel and give you a speech about, about the poor and the underprivileged. Um, and yet that, that does run through. Inevitably, these books, for all their fascination with the Gothic, for all their fascination with, with the supernatural, with fairy tales, with folklore, are very much based in, in the real world and, and are tied into real-world concerns. So yeah, there's that, that element is there. Um, but as you say, John, it, it's what's happened in the divisions in the US and the UK in the last few years that when people say I don't want politics in TV or fiction or theatre or whatever, they mean, those people mean I don't want liberal politics. They yeah. wouldn't complain about politics in Tom Clancy or... Oh God, no, or, or, yeah. or Brad Thorne. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely, it is, it is that difficulty. But, you know, and, and I, I write what I, I usually say what I say, I've just said now, that actually, sorry you feel that way, but there's a, there's a, I, I believe something different. And, and a lot of them will come around at that point, they just want to let off steam. You know, before it would have been very hard because you'd have to get a letter and write it and yeah. find a stamp and lick the envelope and find a post box. And by the time you come around to the like, oh, I just couldn't be bothered. You know? <laughs> and I'll get over it tomorrow. You know? There was somebody else on this aisle, yeah, if we get a microphone, and then we'll start spreading out. Can we get the microphone to the gentleman? Yeah. Um, hi, John. Hello. Um, thanks for the series, absolutely fabulous. Um, my question really is, uh, Parker's quite a cerebral guy on one level, but he's also a man of action when required. He's not the Jack Reacher, but you know, he's, he's a pretty cerebral bloke, but he can do the action. Do you have to make a conscious effort to balance those two sides of his personality, or does that come quite naturally to you? No, I, I suspect that you know, increasingly that, that physicality isn't there, because um, yeah, I used to read the Robert B. Parker Spencer novels. Uh, which I've loved, but you know, Spencer never changed. He always stayed 40, and at that age when you can still run around a bit, and if you're in a fight, you're fairly handy and you can tell a door, and your knee doesn't hurt. Um, <laughs> although, you know, a bit, they would have those occasional moments where, you know, uh, where I've said this before, there's, there's one novel where he and his girlfriend, Rachel, are really quite an annoying character, even for people who like this Parker books, are having a discussion about, about maybe they should have a child. And you're thinking, wait a minute, you served in Korea. You know, it's, if you were dating her then, you know, it's probably not going to happen now. Get, get, get a puppy, you know. Um, but, uh, but as, you know, Parker is now, in the books, Parker's always about four years older than I am. And you have to be more cautious. You simply can't do that anymore. And, and he and Louis and Angel, they're, they're, there's a, an awareness of mortality creeps in. I mean, Louis and Angel, for example, at one point of the discussion, they realize they're going to die sooner. They'll die in the service of this man. It will be worth it, but, but they will die. Um, so no, they, it, a lot of these things are, I, I don't know about other writers, you become so comfortable. It was like Mark was asking about the voice. You know, I've been lived with this character now for almost 30 years. And it, it becomes a facet of you, not that you're like him, but it becomes a way of looking at the world. And he's there somewhere in you. And when you sit down to write, it comes out quite naturally. And his, the development of him comes out quite naturally. And like a lot of writers, I suspect I'm afraid of thinking too deeply about it. It's a delicate mechanism that, and I'm not entirely sure how it works. I'm just happy that it keeps working. See, that was fascinating, John. Turn that into a little plot spoiler. But um, you said, Leo Angel, they will die, but perhaps they won't. Perhaps they're dead already. I mean, these things are all um, up in the air. Possible, aren't they? 
Well, in, in theory they are. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, because the, the novels are presenting as a, as a sequence, at some point there has to be a resolution. Um, I mean, I still love writing these books. And do you, do you know what you know how? Oh, I mean, if if without turning into J.K. Rowling, if the you know locking something in a safe. I mean, certainly, I like any sensible middle-aged man. I go to the doctor once a year, and if he said, look, don't book any holidays after November, I'd, I'd certainly be able to provide. I, I kind of know. I know the title of the last book, and I know how it ends. And it's probably not how people could people always come to and say it's going to end this way, and it's they're always wrong. Are you going to tell us the title? No. Um, yes. Thank you for a really fascinating conversation. Um, John, you, you know the gothic mode seems to kind of surge at times of anxiety, you know, originating with the, the terror of the French Revolution, turn of the century, 19th century, 20th century. Is it, do you think it's the gothic mode's preoccupation with fear that makes it probably the, the, the best genre for the times in which we're living? Yeah, there's certainly unease. Very, very comfortable with, with unease. And, and as you say, it, it was often a, um, you get these reactions, again, this Mark's very interesting question. Um, you get these reactions to the times, um, you know, and, and uh, with the birth of the modern age in the Victorian age and the, this fascinating industrialization of machinery, you have a lot of people turning to spiritualism and these alternatives and, and this different mode of living. Um, yeah, and I think that the Gothic is real. I find Lefferty fascinating for that reason. And, and again, to go back to, to Uncle Silas, which is a kind of proto-novel for, for what I set out to do. You know, Lefferty recognized when he was writing the book that he was writing something different. He was writing something that people would be uncomfortable with because people didn't want to see that intermingling of the Gothic mode necessarily with something that was closer to crime fiction, that was closer to naturalism. And yet he was very comfortable with it. And I think, yeah, like I said earlier, Irish writers have always been comfortable with that unease, with that sense of uncertainty. Um, and there may be particular cultural and historical reasons because we were so unsettled for so long that unease becomes our natural mode. We don't have anything to settle into. And maybe that's, I'm just thinking off the back of, maybe that as a way it has affected that writing during that period, perhaps. It's a really interesting question. But when I reread Frankenstein, it's astonishing. You, you can smell the fear, the fear. Of, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, when I was in the British Museum some time ago, you know, they have the, they circulate manuscripts mm. in that lovely room that you go to for nothing, mm. so there's always something to see there. And I think at one point they had an exhibition on the Gothic, and, and Mary Shelley's manuscript, and it looks like homework. Mm. It's in a line book with yeah. a, and you can see here, person by Shelley's changes in the margins yeah. that he had suggested, you know, and, and you realize just how young she was when she wrote this extraordinary book. Um, yeah, come on, anyone raise a hand? Have I delighted you long enough? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody like to? Yes, so we'll take these two. And then we'll John will sign copies. Yeah, we'll just take these two. Um, thanks for the talk, John. Very interesting. Um, I just finished um, Southern. Dirty South. Dirty South. <laughs> and uh, there's a very powerful scene in it in which uh, Charlie Parker is literally haunted by the ghost of his wife, and um, it was a very powerful scene, and I, I kind of really remember that. Um, but coming back to your earlier point about growing up in Ireland against the backdrop of the Troubles, you know, bereavement and, and the pain that people suffer, and perhaps um, for some people the desire for revenge. I mean, these are defining uh, qualities of Charlie Parker. I mean, do you think you were channeling your sort of Irishness there in, in, in that aspect of his character? Yeah, I, I suppose I was. You know, the, and I, I, I've always thought I was a lot of anger with my father. There are a lot of absent fathers in the books. A lot of absent father figures run through the books. Um, and there are also books often about male companionship and male friendship and the importance of it. I mean, that fed into the Stan Laurel book as well. He, um, I often think male friendship is, is, is often undervalued and underrated because so much of it is unspoken and so much of it is silent. And yet, um, there can be very few men here who don't have one of those relationships with somebody maybe from childhood, from the first job. That, when inevitably the way of things one or the other of them passes away, bereavement in the sense of losing a, a wife or a husband, you know, it's, you're never gonna replace that person. And so that, that feeds into a lot of the books. The, but they've often, they've always been fascinated by, by grief and how we overcome grief and loss, how we live with it. Um, that's a recurring theme and it may be part of my Irishness, but also feeds out a lot of them. 
certainly my, my own life and my own dealing with grief as well and loss, they've all fed into the books. But I was always amazed when I went to Ireland that, you know, we always say it's quite rare to have someone, a relative, close relative murdered in England. It really isn't rare in um, Ireland. You would, Northern Ireland, you would meet quite a lot of people. Oh, well, you certainly, I think it was, the, oh yeah, well, you would know by yeah. one remove, yeah. uh, certainly in Northern Ireland, yeah. somebody would be infected. Um, last question. There was somebody else who was, yes. Because that was somebody who wanted to steal my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just want to just quickly, because you said you don't plan ahead with your books and stuff, but you do know when the final book's going to be like and stuff. When you're writing a book, do you at any point, do you kind of pick what the next project's going to be? Or do you just finish yeah. it and then wait? No, uh, usually about, now I, I would get very worried if halfway through the book I was writing, I didn't at least have the spark for the next book. And there's almost like a sense of relief. I kind of go, yeah. I, I, I mean, it would only be literally that. It would be one scene or it would be the opening of the chapter. But it's enough to know that happens. And I think that when, that when that doesn't happen, I probably have to stop. That would be a sign that I literally, that I, I've run out, that, that it might be time to call it a day. But for now, that, that, that hasn't happened. I mean, at the moment, there are two books at different, pretty much completed. One is the next Parker book, which will be, I think, will be delivered. Well, it won't be published next year, but in 2024. And most likely, in October, the sequel to the Book of Lost Things will be delivered. That would be, thanks, Dad, um, will be delivered. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, I, I'm a little bit ahead of the moment, thankfully, thanks to COVID. Okay, um, fascinating uh, conversation you. with um, John Connolly. Uh, two, three books for the price of two, <laughs> you can get, um, and that's also very good for upper body strength <laughs> as well. So, um, John will be signing um, in the bookshop. Thank you to him and thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.